0: And I have, a Can I have a
1: that? And until you address, I think, the inequalities that are absolutely central to food choice, it, it makes no sense to actually dictate food choice unless you are prepared to entrench those very same inequalities
0: can I have another snack? Hey everyone and welcome back to the can I have another snack podcast where we talk about food bodies and identity especially through the lens of parenting. I'm Laura Thomas I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist and I also write the can I have another snack newsletter. Today I'm sharing part two of my conversation with Professor Karen Throsby, author of Sugar Rush. If you're just joining us, then make sure you go back and listen to part one of this episode before you jump in to this part. We talk all about mortified mothers, how removing sugar from the diet is gendered work that often falls on women, and how the certainty around the badness of sugar belies a lot more doubt and ambiguity coming from the scientific community. So go back and check that part out if you haven't already listened. Today in part two, we're getting into why the so-called war on obesity has to constantly reinvent itself to stay relevant and how it fails to meet its own objectives. We also talk about how ultra processed foods are quickly becoming the new sugar and how that conversation fails to acknowledge the role that convenience foods play in offering immediate care over the privilege in being able to eat for some nebulous concept of future health. And we couldn't talk about sugar and not talk about Jamie Oliver and the sugar tax. So that's coming up too. But before we get to Karen, a super quick reminder that all the work we do here is entirely reader and listener supported and the podcast is my biggest operating cost. I'll do everything I can to keep it free and accessible and you can help by becoming a paid subscriber. It's £5 per month or £50 per the year and you can pay that in your local currency wherever you are in the world. Paid subscribers get access to the extended CHAS universe, including our weekly discussion threads, my monthly column, Dear Laura, and the whole back archive. You also support the people who work on this podcast and help ensure that we can keep the lights on around here. You can sign up at laurathomas.substack.com and the link is in your show notes. And as always, if you're experiencing financial hardship, comp subscriptions are available. Please email hello at and put the word snacks in the subject line and we will hook you up. Thank you as always for your support and for making this work possible. All right, team, I know you're going to love the second installment of this episode. So let's get straight to it. Here's part two of my conversation with Professor Karen Throsby. Karen, I want to come back to this idea that you articulate so well in the book. You say that the so-called war on obesity has been unable to warrant its core empirical claims. Yeah, I'm, quote, I'm quoting you now, and and has been a notable failure when measured against its own goals of sustained population-level weight loss. Yeah. Can you explain how in order to sustain itself, the war on obesity had to reinvent itself like Madonna yeah, by yeah. casting a new villain and can yes.
1: talk about that arc a little bit? Yeah. So if we think about, I mean, obviously, the, the sort of attack on fat bodies has, has a very long history. Mm. But if we think about its most recent history in, in the form of the war on obesity, which dates yes, to around like- the turn of the millennium as a new kind of intensified attack where dietary fat was seen as the core problem. Sugar has always been seen as a problem. We can even go back to the 1960s and the rise of um, artificial sweeteners and their take up in the diet industry. So it's always been there as a problem, but it was really fat, 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 fat. And that's why when I looked at the newspaper articles, sugar was hardly talked about because the focus was different. And I think what we get is then with that repeated failure where there has been a base. I mean, there's in the UK, there's been a leveling off of mm-hmm. obesity rates, Yeah, but it doesn't meet the aspirations of the attack on obesity. It has been yeah. a failure. And I think it runs out of steam because yeah. it's not achieving the change. And and yet you get this kind of constant hectoring and, and sort of constant renewal. I can't there's been I can't remember. It's like. 17 policies or something, you know, in the last 20 years. And it's, you okay. know, the, none of them are successful, have been successful. And then so we get to about 2012. And one of the things that happened in the UK, of course, was the Olympics, where there was a lot of anti-obesity talk. It was seen as a way of refreshing the war on obesity. And I think that partly opened door.
0: Yeah. I'm any- sorry, smirking, enemy. because I was in the States at that point doing my PhD. So I kind of like missed a lot of what right. was going on here, but around 2012 in the Olympics so yeah it's really interesting that you're you're
1: no you noted that 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 kind of like a core a core justification for the for for funding you know a a mega event like the Olympics was that it would boost sport which would boost attempts to to reduce obesity and so you've got that in the background you've got the fact that it is losing steam you know and so it needs to find another another enemy, something to, to pick it back up again. And mm-hmm. sugar, I think, because at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, we've got austerity measures being consolidated through the Welfare Reform Act in 2012, yeah. which put all of those welfare cuts in place. Um, so then the idea of sugar and the the kind of an austerity worked really well together. The idea that individuals should make small economies to yes. get by, to manage their own consumption that you shouldn't overconsume because it costs the state, it costs mm. other people money. And so those narratives came together perfectly and sugar just became this, this model enemy for the moment. And then what we see then is the rise of interest in the sugar tax, which yes. was announced in 2016, which is the peak in the newspaper coverage and then was launched in 2018. So in a, in a sense, the history of the social life of sugar during this moment is an arc that that sort of covers the rise to the sugar tax and then its implementation. But all of the expectation that had been laid on fat is then laid onto sugar as the problem. If only we can solve this problem. And so again, as I said before, it creates this erasure of the absolute complexity of food and eating. The idea that food is only ever swallowing and metabolizing it's you know it's so social it performs so many social functions around love care comfort you know all of those things that that it just completely inadequate and then what we've got now is a tailing off and actually it tailed off during the pandemic there was a little peak at the beginning if you can remember when uh, boris johnson launched an anti-obesity policy when he came out of hospital he was blaming his own body size on the fact that he'd been very unwell And so we saw a little peak then, but it's basically dropped off now. So, in sort of uh, 10 years, we've had a sort of complete focus on sugar and then this tailing off of interest Mm. in it. And I think now what's coming in instead is ultra processed food is now filling that gap, but it's folded sugar into it because obviously, ultra processed food is almost, I mean, has always got sugar in it. Yes. And so it's picked up the sugar as it's gone. Yeah so it's all of that is still there but it's now being talked about in terms of ultra processed food
0: i imagine that was what you you might say about kind of almost this like third phase of the the war on obesity in terms of who or what is responsible because there almost has to be this singular entity that we can point at and at the same time i think it's so interesting that ultra processed food has just kind of subsumed every kind of nutritional villain that 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 we could yeah. have fat sugar sweeteners and the, just the complexity within the concept of ultra processed food in terms of just from a lay perspective right to try and wrap your head around what is and isn't mm-hmm. I mean I have a PhD in nutrition and I struggled to get through the NOVA documentation mm-hmm. on ultra processed food and to bring it back to, to the sort of gendered aspect of, of, of this for a second, something that I noted that, so Carlos Montiaro is the guy, right, that developed the NOVA classification. Yep. I'm not sure if you've read much yeah. around this. I don't know if this is a, a book that's in the works for the future, but one of the things he he said is that ultra-processed food is the undoing, basically, of the family meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot that we could unpack there in terms of like the sort of putting a family meal on a pedestal and and how that even has sort of classed and you know all kinds of um connotations. But I mean, as a mother of a small child, to my thinking, actually ultra processed food saves our family meals, right? Right. <laughs> like it makes it feasible to get something on the table while you have, you know, a child kind of hanging around your legs begging you to play with them. All of the kind of the rhetoric from Carlos Montero and the men of science, it kind of, it misses the piece of labor around labor, which we've talked about, but it also misses this piece of just how we're all just struggling to survive in late stage capitalism and how none of us in our lives have the conditions available to us where, you know, we have affordable childcare or family close by because we're living in these like hyper isolated, splintered, you know, individual houses <laughs> and, and we have no community. And I think there's this a piece that gets missed out of this conversation about the bigger, broader social structures that we're living within, which I suppose, you know, speaks to the, the thesis of, of your book. So yeah, I was just tying it back to some of my observations around ultra-processed food. So it's it's really interesting that you've gone there. And I'm curious to hear what additional thoughts
1: you have about that. Yeah, I mean, I think for me that the alarm that goes off for me when I hear this talk about ultra-processed food mm. is, is very similar to my alarm around the way the sugar that sugar is talked about. It's carrying a lot of weight, that it's mm. it's being now framed as, again, the problem, if we mm-hmm. can do that. But now it's a very different kind of problem to sugar. So we know that sugar is in a lot of foods. If you go to a supermarket, it, you know, a considerable proportion of the, the foods will have added sugar. But there's a real difference there between, say, observing that where you could, for example, purchase lower sugar items and so on. But to say that, I mean, what is it, 60 to 80% of food that we eat this is the the figures that we get who is we is ultra processed food and we shouldn't eat it what what do they expect people to eat are they seriously suggesting that people take out 60 to 80 percent of their habitual diet
0: well i have an answer to that actually karen so gregorne skrinis i know you reference a lot in your book he thinks that we should all Well, he had two recommendations from one podcast I listened to. One was that we should all, there should be lots of markets everywhere that people can just pick up food, fresh
1: food, right? Like,
0: And secondly, he also thinks we should all be able to go into our garden and pick a
1: salad. Right. I mean, (laughs) it's a lovely fantasy. (laughs) <laughs> it's a lovely I fantasy on love the labour of, of women again, but the, it is. A I lo- would love to have a garden first of all that well, I exactly. could be able to do that. Lots but some people don't have those gardens; <laughs> they don't have farmers' markets. You know, it's it's a it's a yeah. lovely fantasy, and it's probably you know, it's probably not a bad idea. But realistically, you know, people can't do that for all kinds of complicated reasons. And I think what what gets lost there is, I think, the idea of health in the present. So. For example, we know that um, um of when I talk about the we, you know, the or oh, we we mm-hmm. are eating this, what's often meant there is they are eating this. Right. We know that a lot of people the people, the the big figures in the anti-UPF field Chris are not Van
0: eating. It, and, right. Yeah. Like
1: they're not eating it. So they are eating it. And there's this complete lack of understanding around, for example, if you have no money if you really have no money if you're very poor if you're poor in every way which many many people are in this country to feed your child a processed meal that is highly palatable and calorific that you know they'll finish and not be hungry is an act of care in the present that your kids not going to be hungry they'll be able to concentrate at school get a good night's sleep those things whereas those that that act is not credited. So if you were to cook food from scratch or buy an unfamiliar food, for example, and give it to a child. Now, I've never raised a child. But from what I kind of understand, children are incredibly conservative. And it (laughs) takes many, many goes at a new food before they will eat it. So if you have no money, and you give your child an apple that they won't eat, you can't give them anything else. And so the cost of experimentation is very, very high yeah. for people with no, nothing to fall back on. And so there's lots of reasons. And then we talk about time poverty. Yeah. It's better to you know sit down and grab something that is processed rather than not having the time to cook anything. Mm-hmm. And so lots of those reasons why people might eat this food. And until you address, I think, the inequalities that are absolutely central to food choice... It, it makes no sense to actually dictate food choice yeah. unless you are prepared to entrench those very same inequalities.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think you articulated it so beautifully with that example around the opportunity cost of feeding a child. Or you know, exposing them, we would use the, the language of exposure in nutritional science. In terms of, you need fifteen to twenty exposures before a child will accept a food, and even that's horse shit, right? We know like it can take a lot more than that, and 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 even then, you know, the, say they do eat the green beans or the broccoli or whatever it is, that's unlikely to fill them up and stave off hunger for for that child. So. Yeah, I think framing it as an act of care is such a beautiful way to to put it because you know the the alternative that's being peddled by these UPF sort of evangelists is that that you're doing something harmful for your child and setting up that binary is so problematic because again yeah you're just flattening down so much nuance there. Yeah,
1: yeah exa- exactly that that it's too this idea that food is either good or bad mm. and sugar is either is bad, and if you say it's good, then you must work for the sugar industry. And if you make a, if you make a set of claims as I have, a kind of critical claim where I I refuse the idea that it's either good or bad. I've never said that it's good or bad. Yeah, um, I just get accused of shilling Coca Cola. You know, which I'm not, by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, you're you're an academic, and what you're doing is complicating a lot of these things Thanks. that that seem. Or I suppose where the the rhetoric around them is so, yeah. um, binarized and flattened, and yeah, just just uh, you're you're asking questions, which I think we need to do a lot more of. Yeah. Speaking of questions, there is one one more thing, little topic that I'd like to uh, say little topic. It's not a little, little topic at all, but one of the things that you are, one of the threads that felt really important in your book that I feel often gets obscured from any conversations about sugar is the really troubling history stemming from colonialism and enslavement of sugar. Can you speak to how nutrition and public health sort of wash their hands of this history and maybe tell us a little bit about that history and and what happens when we erase it?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are aware, even though it, it doesn't come to the fore as much as it should, that there is a terrible history and in many ways present attached to sugar Mm -hmm. obviously it was you know as a central product in in the slavery in the slavery trade it was um you know millions of people were enslaved in the interests of sugar production um the the murder of of uncountable people the dislocation of uncountable people to get sugar and this kind of partly relates to its 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 kind of history as a firstly as a luxury item Mm. and then as a kind of Every day, in in the sort of you know the the 20th century, it becomes a um, it becomes a more everyday item that you know right. that workers would put in their tea to mm-hmm. get to get energy. But also, we can even see more recently in in um, say Australia, for example, there's a really terrible history of indentured labour. So post slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of slavery, there was and the use of indentured labor. So Pacific Island people, for example, in Australia, under absolutely horrific conditions, working conditions of profound racism as well. And these things leave a long legacy. And we know that, you know, the legacy of slavery, you know, has, has led to the marginalization of uh, people of color, mm-hmm. you know into the present. And so I think it's an important point. One of the things that that bothers me a little bit about the ways it does get talked about is that it gets, there's a couple of books that talk about it as a kind of essentially evil product. Look, it was connected with slavery, and now it's killing everybody. Mm. Um, As if it's sort of in itself, it was contaminated, whereas in fact, of course, it was Mm. colonialism, it was capitalism. That was the problem, not sugar, because we saw with cotton and tobacco and and so on as well so it's it's an interesting thing because it in some ways it gets talked about as well it's clearly a kind of terrible product look at its history and yet at the same time we don't talk about its history and what the legacy is of that in terms of racism the yeah. the sort of legacies of of colonialism and also we should also think as well about the present environmental damage of the sugar industry which you know is incredibly greedy of water for example mm-hmm. and and causes a great deal of environmental damage which is mm-hmm. also always through the lens of colonialism in the sense of who bears the weight of that damage which areas where which Absolutely.
0: places i thought there was a really i mean there were lots of really illuminating examples in the book but but one thing and maybe you could speak more to this is the kind of voyeuristic aspects of Jamie Oliver's sugar documentary where he acts he he is almost behaving like the colonizer in in or embodying the colonizer by going to Mexico and sort of you know as he claims seeing the damage that has been caused by companies like Coca-Cola but that that is missing a lot of the the
1: content, the historical context. Yeah. Can
0: you just yeah describe sure. that probably a bit better than I can?
1: But so, I mean, Mexico has got this this kind of sort of unique status in the anti-sugar world as a place where sugar consumption is very high, but was also one of the first places to introduce a sugar tax, and so it's it's seen as as a sort of model site, and and every, sort of everybody references Mexico in all the policy papers and things. And, and what Jamie Oliver did is in this, his documentary about sugar, he went to uh, Mexico, he went to the uh, area of Chiapas, which has a very troubled history of conflict and profound poverty. And he actually goes to a family, a family dinner, a family event. It's actually a memorial event for a family member who died and they have and they cook up a big dinner and, and he looks on very approvingly. At the food that they're cooking, they're sort of you know frying up all these great right. vegetables and and spices, and he he keeps saying how authentic it is and how what a great job they're doing, and then we he starts seeing what they're drinking and they're drinking uh, pop, they're drinking yeah. um, fizzy drinks from the bottles, and also we see we we see several shots of uh, women feeding uh, babies uh, or toddlers, giving them pop uh, mm-hmm. to drink, and he sort of he, his disapproval is so. Palpable. And he sort of looks at the camera and like, why would they do this? Don't they know? You know, and mm. he he seems to have forgotten that earlier he'd spoken to an activist in the area who tells him that there is there is very little um drinkable water in the region. And so actually, again, we can see the pop as an act of care mm. that the kids are being given, you know, something safe to drink. He never asks the next question. And he's got this very colonial gaze, which is if only these people knew they would make different choices.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. And and there was another moment again that there I think there were children drinking Coca-Cola and with a similar sort of like oh my God, don't they know any better sort of stance. It was a dentist who said that they saw a lot of children who had been drinking high amounts of, of like fizzy drinks, sweetened drinks, and that they the the dentist started asking questions. And the, one of the, I think it was the mother maybe, or someone in the family had said that they were giving the child a fizzy drink to help keep them quiet and then the dentist said, "Well, why do you need to keep them quiet?" And they had said, "Well, because otherwise they will be beaten by their extended family."
1: Yeah, I think it's a case from from Alaska actually that particular ah, okay. case. But what I think what's in, but yes, the point is that the mother giving the baby fizzy drinks yeah. was again performing an act of care to protect the yeah. child in terms of present health. Mm. the child wouldn't be beaten for being crying and so on but this this kind of trope of babies being given pop to drink runs right the way through the anti-sugar field as like the worst the most egregious example and of course it's another version of of mother blaming yes and of kind of and then it goes through this colonial lens of ignorance Mm -hmm. if only they knew we need them
0: and then they need these white male chef saviors yeah, to come in and
1: exactly. So again, it's about it's not it's not I'm not saying that you know, giving the babies pop is is a good thing or a bad thing. It's performing a particular function,
0: yeah,
1: for the people caring for that child. and then it's it's framed through this colonial lens of if only these people knew better and we are the ones who can teach them. yeah, yeah rather than asking, what is it in your life that make, that influences your food choices?
0: That makes how that, could
1: we make your lives better?
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes giving our children a sweetened drink, you know, a necessity in the first place. Yeah, what necessitates that? So then, <laughs> we've talked a lot about this Jamie Oliver character, and um, I was telling you before we started recording that I now inextricably have the image of Jamie Oliver dancing outside of Parliament. Um, <laughs> playing in my mind whenever I think about the the sugar tax, I don't know if you intended your book to be funny, but I found it hilarious the way that you were just name dropping all these people who I like know through nutrition. But that's that's an aside. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the sugar tax and specifically the ways that the sugar tax is constructed so that it cannot fail.
1: So the sugar tax is if if sugar is. A problem about which something must be done. Mm-hmm. Then sugar tax was the something in in the UK context, and the promise of the sugar tax was that it would reduce consumption of sugar, which in turn would a produce more money to use for health projects and b create health benefits. It would lead to a reduction in obesity, diabetes, all kind of chronic diseases. Okay. But it's set up in such a way that so its ultimate goal is to reduce illness, right, So to reduce obesity, uh, which I don't consider to be an illness, but um, to reduce obesity and to improve measure, make he- measurable health improvements at population level. That's the target. But actually, it doesn't have to do that to succeed. So the first thing it, it needs to do, it can, the first way it can, can can succeed is by reducing consumption which is taken as a proxy for expected benefits. So the sugar tax did reduce consumption of sugar. A lot of drinks were reformulated in advance of the tax to have less sugar. It did reduce purchasing of the high sugar drinks to some extent. Uh, It's a fairly modest reduction, but it is a reduction and that's been mapped fairly, you know, across the board globally in these taxes, right? But there is no evidence of the measurable health impacts that were assumed to follow. And instead, what happens is they get pushed into the future. Ah, we haven't seen them yet, but we will see them, especially if we have more taxes. So the problem is not that the tax hasn't worked, but that there aren't enough of them. So we need to tax sweets and and other, you know, cereals and things. So there's that way that as long as it reduces consumption, it can't fail even if it doesn't produce measurable health effects. The second is financial. So it will produce money, revenue, which can then be invested into, I mean, in our case, it was, they said it would go towards breakfast clubs and sporting facilities. Although when you look across the documents, the number of times over that the money is spent (laughs) is, is amazing. And the idea is that you get, then you get health gains, by other means right yeah. so get you have breakfast clubs so kids will have a healthy breakfast so it doesn't matter if the sugar reduction doesn't lead to health gains because there's a revenue gain that will lead to health benefits what's interesting is that also can't lose because if if the tax doesn't raise very much money it means that the tax has worked to reduce consumption mm-hmm. and if the tax raises a lot of money you can say well it's worked because we can now compensate for the high consumption by investing in health benefits so and actually I mean there's there's a whole other set of questions about what actually happened to the money um, well
0: that was what I was wondering because I'm still seeing that there are four million children in England yeah. who are food insecure yes you know, and where there are, are, are the free school meals for the 800,000 children that whose parents are on yeah. universal credit that aren't Eligible for free school meals, like yeah,
1: and sustain the the organisation. Sustain actually raised some very specific questions about money that they knew had been raised in revenue that hadn't been that had just been drawn into the sort of into the the wealth of the country. Um, so there's that, and then the final way that the sugar tax can succeed is its best way. It's 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 the most nebulous way. Is that it's seen as raising awareness <laughs> that simply by the fact of its existence, it's alerting people to the dangers of sugar. And so in a sense, it doesn't have to produce any of the other benefits because it's raised awareness. And what's interesting about this to me is that that then flings it straight back onto the individual. Well, we told you, we've signaled it through the sugar tax. You're still not eating appropriately. You're still not feeding your children appropriately. So it's a kind of abnegation of political responsibility, even while claiming to be taking responsibility by having the tax. So this is my concern about the tax is that it can't fail and actually it ends up throwing responsibility back onto individuals and as always particularly women where food is concerned yeah well
0: that's exactly what Matt Hancock wanted so he has got his way (laughs) <laughs> but I do. I do think it's really interesting that, especially that that first part that you talked about the the sort of constantly moving goalposts, and you know, oh yes, we'll see these these benefits in the future, and it just all feels so nebulous. And and then that being used as justification for us needing more and additional, you know, taxation again. Sort of obfuscating from all of the social and structural things over here going yeah. that that nobody is is yeah. is is addressing. I mean, so. you can think
1: about the attack on sugar and really and the, and the war on obesity more generally as it's a very future oriented project mm. that the, the benefits all lie in the future. If I give up sugar now, mm-hmm. I will experience these these benefits in the future, which is in itself a profound act of privilege, and yes. that's why I kind of mentioned the. The, the healthcare in the present of giving your child a bag of chips or something that will fill them up is being an act of healthcare in the present because they don't have the, the luxury mm. to invest in the future in the way that is being determined um, in these prescriptions to give up sugar.
0: And simultaneously, you see this sense of urgency on the political side of things, even though these alleged benefits to people aren't going to be seen for years and years in the future. But the sense of urgency in terms of policymaking and and you get yeah. these very off the cuff, ill thought out, you know, not thinking about the potential collateral damage of these exactly. policies just for political gain. And yeah, we're all yeah. just collateral damage in yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, interestingly, it's not we're we're not all collateral damage. It's particular groups of people are collateral. Well, damage. that's true. It's yes, no, is exactly. the really salient point. I agree with yeah. you, but that's the really salient point that the weight of this damage does not fall evenly, and that's like where my concern. Yeah. That's kind of where the book really tries to focus is where the weight of those exclusions falls.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's so on the on the point. So thank you for for that. Karen, before I let you go, I would love to hear what your snack is. So at the end of every episode, my guest and I share what they've been snacking on. So it could be anything, a show, a podcast, a literal snack, whatever you have been snacking on lately. So what have you got to share with the, the listeners?
1: OK, so so mine is a it's a it's an activity, really. So I love to swim and mm-hmm. I swim in a, an outdoor pool which is unusual in the UK at uh, a health club. And just just recently, I swim in the evening and it's got mm-hmm. very dark, uh, but it's been very autumnal and the leaves have been kind of falling while and the, the, the pool is surrounded by trees. And it is the most peaceful and delicious space uh, mm-hmm. at the end of a very busy day to, to just go into the pool and be surrounded by this, it's very cold. The pool is warm, but the air is very cold. Yes. And it's a very particular moment that happens in the autumn where you get this beautiful color and this the sort of mist is rising off the pool. And it's the most peaceful, relaxing space at the end of a difficult day mm-hmm. or a long day. And I just look forward to it all day. Oh, and then I just love the first 10 minutes of that swim is just yeah. is the best moment ever. So that would, that's my that's my snack.
0: I'm sitting here so envious of you right now because I know exactly what you're talking about. I live like a five-minute walk from a Lido here in London. It's very close, but I'm navigating some pelvic pain I haven't been able to go for a swim for such a long time but I I know exactly that moment that you're referring to which um yeah it's so lovely when apart from when you get to the, the stage uh in autumn where they like leave out baskets and with the idea that you gather up leaves as
1: you're going but <laughs> I love the leaves being in the water I love I having the leaves too. in the water and it's just it's it's such a comforting space for me Um, I
0: I agree there's something really holding containing about being in the water so so my snack is it's an actual literal snack but it's an anticipatory snack because every year so my brother lives in the the states and every year we do like uh an exchange of like I send him a bunch of like dairy milk and like all these like (laughs) (laughs) chocolates and he sends me stuff from from the US so I've sent him with a list of stuff from Trader Joe's. Um so I'm vegan, which I, I believe you are as I well. As well so yes. I just ask him to like clear the shelves of any like vegan shelf stable <laughs> snacks and just box them all up and send them to me. So I know I have like peanut butter pretzels and the almond butter pretzel. They're like these little nuggets yep. filled with peanut butter and almond butter, but like a pretzel Ooh, casing. So nice. I know that they're coming and they're so salty on the outside public health england i can see susan jebb is just like screaming at me right now (laughs) but it's okay so yeah i'm looking forward to getting that by the time that this episode comes out in january i will have had my snacks you will have had your snacks that is
1: fantastic (laughs) karen
0: before i let you go can you please tell everyone where they can find your book actually say the title of it and where they can get it and where they can find more of your work
1: Yep. So the book is called Sugar Rush, Science, Politics and the Demonization of Fatness. And it's published by Manchester University Press and you can buy it through their website. And um, if you want to learn more about the work that I'm doing, you can find me at the University of Leeds. If you put my name, Karen Throsby, into the search engine uh, or into into Google, I'll pop up and there's a list of the publications that I've done there and how you can get hold of me as well.
0: Well, I will definitely link to the book and to your part on Leeds website in the show notes that everyone can find you and learn more about your work. Karen, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. And thank you so much for your really brilliant and important work.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. (laughs) Can we have another snack? Can we have another
0: snack? Thanks so much for listening to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast. You can support the show by subscribing in your podcast player and leaving a rating and review. And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year, as well as getting tons of cool perks. You help make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove, Fiona Bray, formats and schedules, all of our posts, and make sure that they're out on time every week. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Praser, and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Can I have another snack? <laughs> Hee <laughs> hee